This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. Welcome back to another episode of Art of Darkness, a special dark room edition. I am Brad Kelly. This is Kevin Kautzman. Uh, real quick, if this is the first time you've listened to a dark room or the first time you've listened to an episode, uh, what a dark room is, is so Art of Darkness really has two parts. We've got our core episodes where we do our deep dive, multi-hour, in-depth uh, uh, biographical profile on an artist, say John Milton. And then in the dark rooms, we have on a special guest, um, another artist, a uh, scholar, academic, interesting personality, whoever we think we can we can wrangle to have an interesting conversation about that one of those subjects. John Milton, in this case, the dark room. Get it? We further develop our thinking on this subject. Today we have uh, a, a friend of the show. Now, friend been, of the pod. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jason Gallagher. Jason was with us, uh, John Berryman core episode, uh, like two years ago or something. Um, and uh, more recently, a Charles Bukowski episode. He's joining us in the dark room, which is probably a relief because it's only about 90 <laughs> minutes as opposed to our just punishing uh, go until it's done on the core episode. So, Jason, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming back on and, and hanging out with us. Of course, guys. It's always yeah. a pleasure to to be in in the same room with you two. It's, yeah, it's so much fun. Yeah, for I'm, sure. I'm glad that we're going to talk a little bit more about Milton today. Yeah, great. And just for people tuning in, Jason uh, Jason Gallagher is a poet himself. Uh, he teaches English at the University of uh, Missouri St. Louis, uh, working on his MFA there. I think we might end up talking about that a little bit. Um, he's on the board of uh, of Boulevard Literary Magazine. Is that that that's yep, still true? That's also, also was once a contributing editor for the Great Evergreen Review, and of course, he has been widely published uh, in a number of literary uh, magazines and journals. So. Um, yeah, let's kind of roll into it. Um, Jason, this was one, um, you so just, to, just to be clear, oh, ahead, just to Kevin. be clear, we're, we're here to talk about John Milton, the former secretary of foreign tongues for the council of the state of England. <laughs> that is That's correct. Right. Yes. Okay. During, <laughs> that John. Cromwell, during the Cromwell administration, very yeah. 
that one in the same. Yes, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the intricate bureaucratic maneuver. Right now. <laughs> I, was, I think we're going to. I was just reading about his back and forth with the king of Portugal yesterday on yeah. one of the the biographies. I think that's going to be illuminating listening for the. Right, right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we, we might touch In on another that. devastatingly boring episode of Art of Darkness. We're joined by jason gallagher it's talking hey, about the new yeah. here here's the thing fellas this is why i wanted to do this one and i noticed it in the episode too one mm. of the things that i really want to talk about is milton as a stylist and what that has done and still does to 21st century poetry and i think that you guys did an excellent job sort of going over iambic pentameter and getting the listeners sort of into that, you know, the technical aspects, but there's, there are other stuff that is going on, particularly with a generation of middle-aged poets here in the United States that are directly related to uh, Miltonic lines in his free verse iambic pentameter that i think is really cool and i wanted to bring to you guys's attention since you were you were doing uh melton already yeah well let's start there because that sounds really interesting to me i mean this is something very fascinating how what does a you know a poet from the 1600s what does it have to do today and you're telling us like though this is like this is alive in the in in po contemporary poetry. So so let, let us know a little bit more about that. That's very yeah. So so absolutely. I started my MFA work very late to come to uh, that aspect of a poet. I had been a working and published poet for nearly eleven years, and then I thought, you know, it's it's almost the Beyonce syndrome. I decided that I'd put a ring on it and get. <laughs> academically married to poetry there you go um and i was working at the state university of new york system and didn't really want to do any work on um on an on-ground uh program so i decided to do a uh limited uh short-term project uh i can't really think of what they're calling those now but you're off campus for most of the time and then you do intensive on-campus work for about two and a half weeks oh okay. I, and i was at the uh, university of tampa at the time and their head of their department is a poet who graduated from another place that i'm very close to the university of uh, Cincinnati by the name of Erica Dawson. And she had done a whole session and section of book length poems that were in blank verse. I didn't know this at the time. Hmm. I just was looking for a program that sort of fit with where I was financially, where I was academically. I have roots down in central Florida, so I knew the area already. I thought this would be a great place to um, to sort of uh, set down my poetic roots. What I found out is that Erica is a big proponent of incorporating free verse poetry into 21st century line, mm -hmm. and particularly Milt Miltonian 10 syllable free verse poetry. Interesting. And her yeah. thoughts are that it is the way to get to that spiritual sound of the language because she writes a lot about God. Mm. That mm -hmm. sort of is this relationship between what Milton was trying to do and how the Miltonian line is never straight. It's mm. always curving. It is always determinant on where it wants to take itself. And oftentimes what Milton might have been doing, we don't know because we weren't there, is that he was directed by the way his ear was hearing those 10 syllables. Mm -hmm. And you talked a little bit about um, 
T.S. Eliot's sort of critique of Milton as the destroyer of, of English because of the way that he did free verse. And what is going on now with not just Erica, but also with my current, um, my current mentor, uh, Shane Seeley, who I didn't know this at the time either, is very interested in 10 line free verse poetry, is they want to re-wrangle that to create sort of spiritual epic in the 21st century. Wow. So I kind of found myself asked backward in these programs where the heads of the department and the poets were dealing with formal poetry. And I had grown up and, you know, having spent my time with the Evergreen Review, I knew, um, I knew free verse and not blank verse. I knew very much that beat centric um, mid century way of just looking at the line as something that was expandable and was, you know, there to be broken and how it had to be run away from that tradition. And then I had these instructors who were telling me, maybe you want to count your syllables. And it worked for a lot of people for a long time. Exactly. So exactly. And one of the interesting things was, is that at the time that I was being told to count my syllables, I was in a very interesting place as a writer um, because I had left New York and I had come back to St. Louis, which is my hometown. And I was sort of wrestling with, um, and Kevin and I have talked about this before, Mm -hmm. sort of wrestling with that, being a writer in a place that supposedly is not that writerly, right? And particularly putting that into the context of, well, I was in New York and I was doing this in New York and I was doing that in New York. Mm-hmm. And now it's not working out. And <laughs> right. I still have the muse inside of me that wants to... Um, to drive the bus here. I still am a poet. And what does that mean? So I was wrestling that at the same time that my instructors were handing me Paradise Lost and saying, okay. And and one of the things that Erica told me, which I will never forget, is she said, I sleep with a copy of Paradise Lost next to me. And whenever I want to be rejuvenated by the sound of words, I'll pick it up and read it before I go to bed. And wow. then I'll back down um and here's one of the things that i have to say about that i have taken to having the copy of paradise lost next to me as well i don't understand it (laughs) thank you i will be quite honest (laughs) um i do not understand it as a text yeah i understand it as what he is doing with sound what he is doing inverting syntax, what he is doing, creating language, which are things that are truly revolutionary. And he is doing in something that is very, very conservative in form, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you talked about in terms of Milton is that is kind of Milton the man, where he's a rebel who's also conservative. Yes, which is yeah. really, which is really fascinating for like his political and personal life, and then it also sort of speaks into his poetry. But mm. he's creating this form which no one was really using to the extent that he uses it, and then he's breaking it apart, and he's also doing it well into his sixties. Yeah, well, and he's he's doing it at the this, this sort of highest level of organization too, right? It's a, it's an epic. It's a right. it's a heroic epic, but it's not about historical or I mean I suppose mythological. It he, he you know he'd thought about doing an Arthurian legend maybe. Right. Um, there's been you know commonly you would do it about Greek about Greek myth mythological figures and events, and he he places it in in the Bible, and so he's doing that. He old form do something new with it, kind of doing that at the at the the level of the line as well. Right. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. So I was being taught by instructors who were saying, do that again (laughs) and find out how that's going to 
impress itself upon what you are doing. And my work, my project is a 107-page interconnected poetic history of St. Louis, which is both incredibly personal as it talks a lot about sort of my journey and my wife's journey and my, my spiritual journey coming back and you know, taking in a whole bunch of things that I thought that I had thrown away when I was in, um, in New York yeah. and bringing it back as being incredibly important, particularly during um, the height of some things that happened a couple of years ago that maybe I shouldn't talk about if this is going on YouTube. Um, <laughs> yeah. But <clears throat> Kevin. Yeah. all i did was clear my throat throat) kevin and i are both familiar with things happening that we'd rather not speak about um so (laughs) sometimes on the pod but but as as a creative all of this sort of mixes up and i find the blank verse 10 line way of dealing with these subjects really engaging Mm. so i go headlong into it using milton as sort of this um this lodestar not because i understand what he's saying but i am intrigued by the way that he's saying it's 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 fascinating that there's still this is it's almost like it's becoming re-relevant why so for people who maybe excuse me aren't um too in-depth on the technicalities of poetry so blank verse is basically iambic pentameter that doesn't rhyme yes correct and iambic pentameter is unstressed stressed yes as with each syllable okay so why now i I can i feel like i can understand you 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 kind of referred to earlier and and it's been a a sort of a note in this conversation so far about how this this format is somehow amenable to um capturing some aspect of the spiritual experience in poetry um there's there's a means which i can understand that similar to the way that like there's certain notes that work in music that can can lend itself to that there's certain notes you hear in church and some that you don't right um have you had a sense of why iambic pentameter works that way or is it just sort of it works I, feel I mean, it's kind of a tough question. So, so this, it's, 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 I will say that it's a difficult question. Here is like the fits and starts of what my, my brain feels. Mm-hmm. I think part of it is the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Here you have 10 syllables, stressed, unstressed, and you are making this into something that has a larger shape. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's interesting is is you're going to use words or possible ways of forming a sentence that you wouldn't use if you were doing it in prose or -hmm. if you were doing it in free verse and you didn't have the constraint. And the constraint sort of, and I think this is relatable. You you know, Brad, you sent me the Stanley Fish stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think Fish doesn't do a very great job at, although I really thought that that book was really fascinating and I'm Mm -hmm. glad you sent it my way. Mm -hmm. I'm going to to finish reading it. Um, He doesn't take the form into account. He doesn't, yeah, he doesn't say anything about the form. Right. He doesn't talk about form at all, at least in the first 50 pages or so of that book. Mm -hmm. Um, And form is one of the things that is driving what Milton is doing. He's Mm -hmm. he's restricting himself. Now, sometimes Milton counts strangely, and sometimes he fudges a little. He'll give himself an extra foot or so. He'll give himself two or three more syllables. Yeah, I noticed. I noticed this in reading because was as I was reading it, one of the things I st- I would do from time to time is just see if I could keep track of the iambic pentameter. And, and partially, what I think I was trying to do was I was trying to find like a guide rope to hang on to. Just like okay. I know he's very conscious of how this is supposed to sound. So if I'm f- a little bit more focused and make sure I'm I'm trying to keep that rhythm, maybe I'll get a better sense of what he's doing. And then sometimes be like, well, there was 12 syllables in right. that line. Like, what do you? <laughs> but but yeah. the other thing, the other thing is, which is so difficult for us in the 21st century, and this and this 
goes down to Shakespeare as well, mm-hmm. is that we don't have a really definitive understanding of exactly how early modern English sounded. So it's, it's happenstance for us to guess, okay, this is actually a 12 syllable line. This could have been a 10 syllable line. That's Um, true. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that's really sort of um, difficult for the, the modern person when they are doing scansion to say, okay, this line isn't allowed. He's he's a, but he yeah. also is doing it. Sometimes right. it's not, and sometimes it's on us. Mm-hmm. And other times he definitely is creating a 12 or 14 syllable line and he just wants to. Yeah. Um, and and for people, if if you're not quite grokking what Jason's saying here is think about like, we pronounce things differently. Like on this show, we jokingly say sometimes poem, like let's read a poem. That's two a two syllable way of saying the word poem. Well, for all we know, in the 1600s, that's how you said poem, is poem, right? Right. So a there's lot all of kinds. Still say poem. A lot of that's people still joke. say that's yeah. that's the joke, right? And right. I don't know if you say poem, Jason, yeah. but I you yeah. do hear it, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, and there's all kinds of words like that. There's a lot of stuff where you know you you know now we'll say, well, the that that letter is silent. Maybe it wasn't always silent, right? Um, yeah, I so. hear people. I hear people say, "I was listening to the Art of Darkness," and I'm like, yeah. hey, "No, it's just Art of Darkness." But that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Okay. You call yeah. it whatever you want. That's right. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, no, I think that's. I think that's a good point. So trying to track, like, uh, is it is it actually is he really fall, following blank verse or is he let himself slip a little bit? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also some aspects where like. Milton wrote this blind. So well, yeah, right. He was dictating the it final to his... version, right? Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so very, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. Um, yeah. So this is answering all kinds of, this is answering all kinds of questions for me. And I'm, I'm really interested in, as, as not a poet and not somebody who's necessarily, um, extremely up to date on like contemporary what's happening in poetry. Um, this is really interesting to me to hear this come back. And I, I'm kind of, there's a sense in which I'm kind of glad there's there's schools of thought about like how can we put some constraints back on this thing not because it got too out of control but but to me in my creative process it's it's as I've gotten older and I think hopefully gotten better at my craft I've come to understand like it's actually about like picking the right constraints that you put on yourself right to create an environment in which you know you can make the thing happen without any bumpers it gets like everything gets muddled and confused and you have no idea what you're even trying at some point you don't even know what you're trying to do so yeah so that's really interesting because i could say beyond a shadow of a doubt that if i hadn't engaged with structure the way that i did in my manuscript it would not be 107 pages long Mm mm-hmm Right. It, it, you know, and I'm I, that sounds vainglorious in, a, in in some ways, but it needed to be that long. And there's still more inside of me that wants to talk about this city in in that way with that as a guidepost. But if I didn't have any guideposts, I know what used to be my what used to be my way of stopping when I was writing free verse was I got to the end of the page. <laughs> right. No, I'm, right. I'm serious. I'm totally yeah. serious. Wow. And, right. Wow. That wasn't serving the poem and it wasn't serving the topic. So now I've, I've been able to, because of embracing not just blank verse, but I've also been writing in haiku and in tonka and a lot of very, very specialized, highly formalized ways of writing. I can, I can, I can mitigate, okay, this piece can be a six page long piece Mm. and this piece can be three lines and that's okay. Not everything has to hit the bottom of the page or be Mm -hmm. constrained within the bottom of the page. And I've grown and changed as a writer for that very reason. Now, it's not going to be for every poet, but I think it is interesting that there are poets who are saying, let's try to break ourselves out of free verse because free verse may be limiting the art form. And I think in in a strange way, even though it feels like it's liberating, 
so it's, yeah this is it can feel like or from the outside it seems liberating i'm sorry go right. ahead and i'm nobody so i'm just gonna say this shit you're uh, jason you're jason fucking right, you're jason, you're, you've been on art of darkness three <laughs> times now there, and i think i think you guys are aware of this because you're you're smart guys and you know the literary scene there's a certain way that free verse poetry sounds that is immediately what you think of when you think of 21st century poetry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there needs to be less of that. Because I take quite enough. Yes. (laughs) So there's, there's a relationship between MFAs in the creation of that specific type of free verse poetry. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to go to programs, which were very skeptical of that type of writing. And I think that it has made me a better writer. So I think that within poetry itself, there is a, there's, you know, there's a cleavage in which there's a group of people who are saying, you know, it's going to sound this way, which it's sort of sounded like since the eighties. And then there's a group of people that say, maybe we need to wrangle a little bit of this to make it about content. I like that. Yeah. And I, and I understand all this stuff gets extraordinarily political and heated. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's part of me that just kind of as a bit of an outsider. I mean, I've dabbled with poetry and my some of my early plays were heavily in, influenced by kind of a free verse approach to the page. And I read uh, this is such a lit bro thing. Right. But I read Bukowski and I looked at the way he was using the page and I said, oh, I can wait. What? You can just do this. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay, and that really liberated me to in my in my playwriting, um, but I, I don't consider myself a poet, uh, so I don't necessarily have that any skin in the game here. That said, I'm going to repeat myself. I understand it can get heated, but there's as a, as an outsider, it's sort of like, well, why not all of it? Why not all mm-hmm. of it? And almost That's kind of what? like whatever works for you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you're going to take yourself seriously as a poet, maybe uh, it behooves you to learn these forms and to yeah. tinker around with all of the tools in your in your kit you can write that that free poem about going to the track uh all of Bukowski, the little short story poem and then maybe maybe try a book of haikus or a yeah. you know whatever else yeah anyway i i'm kind of like a a more 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 there's like a bit of a weird like scarcity mentality to this idea that it it should be one way and only one yeah. way yeah brett yeah well, yeah, no, I, I, I'm glad you said that, Kevin. And I, I, I like Jason what you said about these different forms too. The haiku, I think, is fascinating. I have a bunch of haikus that, um, I actually, you know, I, I write fiction and stories, trying to get people to read them. I wrote a bunch of haikus as like exercises for a while, where it was like, before I got writing for the day, it was write a haiku. And it did something about consolidate. And again, they weren't intended for anybody to see. They were like literally like warm up exercises. And it did something about forcing me to think about, all right, you're going to put all your energy on like the head of this pin. And you're really going to make that thing happen in a very focused manner. And it always got it weirdly enough by confining me. It somehow it somehow relaxed me because it was like, all right, there's a way to do this. And you just your whatever your way is. The novel is obviously very, very, very different than a haiku. But there's something about there's something about that as a as an exercise. And I want to shout out one book of poetry, very, very recent that I've read that I was really struck by that actually fits somewhat in what we're talking about. Um, uh, friend Tom Will put out his book Pale Townie on Apocalypse Confidential, and Pale Townie is heroic couplets. It takes from um, uh, Nabokov's pale fire and it changes everything but the last word in every line. So he basically took pale fire, deleted everything but the last word in every line, the last rhyme, actually. So the last syllable and then re and then wrote it all back. And it's it's great. And I just think about the 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 organization, like putting yourself on that track and seeing where that track actually goes. It was really, it's really, it's, I highly recommend it. So, I mean, that's my, you know, that's my type of shit right there. That's exactly the, like I said, one of the things that was, that was edifying, that was fun about writing this project Mm -hmm. was thinking of the words or the endings that are possibly going to be used 
to make that 10 syllable line. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, thinking of it as not just a means of telling a story, which was one thing that I was doing, but also sort of a puzzle was like a different way of engaging with the work that, that sort of transcended some of the things that I was doing. And that, and that, and that came out of Paradise Lost. That totally awesome. came out of Paradise well, Lost. Can I put you on the spot? Is there any of this that you, you would care to read for us? I, mean, I kind of guessed that you guys were going to ask that. So. <laughs> well, we've had you on so much on the focused core episodes. Now we got you. We want to make this, in, in some ways at least, about, about Jason Gallagher, the poet. So uh, <laughs> if you've got something... Um, that would be cool. And we don't have to do like uh, what are we what are we gonna talk about on the dark room for Patreon? Patreon.com slash short of dark Okay, right. No, we've been having so much fun. I forgot we're doing a show. Um, so <laughs> so um as people may remember from the John Milton core episode, um we took the title of that episode, Party of the Devil, um, from this quote from William Blake. Quote In Milton, the father is destiny, the son, a ratio of the five sentence senses and the holy ghost vacuum note the reason milton wrote in feather fetters when he wrote of angels and god and at liberty when of devils and hell is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it okay what, what does he mean by that well we're going to talk more about that in the after dark because william blake one of his uh, prophetic books people may know this william blake had his own old home whole own personal mythology, including a number of prophetic texts. One of those prophetic texts is called Milton. So we're going to talk about what was Milton? What was he talking about? What did Milton mean to him? So we're going to talk about Blake's vision of Milton in the afternoon. And, and Brad has prepared a William Blake core episode for Patreon. No, I, no, I have not. He has not done that. Uh, we will We will eventually do William Blake, yeah, yeah, uh, obviously. Yeah. That sounds great, Brad. And of course, if Man. you support us on Patreon, you get all the After Darks one more time. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. Let's hear some poetry from Jason. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. So this is the opening poem to the collection, which is in um, blank verse. It's called Some First Sundays. Some first Sundays of Advent are the days surrounding Thanksgiving. I've gone to church for years on the Saturday after Black Friday. Last year's first Sunday, we walked to church, finding ourselves on the edge of a national park to seek that something I've missed. When you've been hemmed in water for years, you might as well go down to the edge to pray. Prayer that looks out onto a grain silo finding your soul in the grain belt. The church sits on blocks built in the 1900s on a site that housed a church 200 years earlier. I've heard that young people don't go to church anymore. My age, 40, isn't young. Among local types, it's a lot more parishioners than any church in the diocese. But the tales, the history, St. Louis started at that plot and the rest of the city lied behind it, beholden by sinners. As a child, I curled up to my mother in the light of the Advent wreath, pleading for my wellspring to descend upon me. He did not, though I breathlessly waited. Christ, God, man, Savior, Saint, Lamb, King, Spirit. We find our way back to the old blindly. Church is church and church is building, sitting on the banks of a timeless river that mother never thought would cradle child for. I was bound for things outside this juncture of three rivers crashing into heaven. Ooh, it's a pretty good poem. I think you got a future in this poetry stuff, Jason. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate that, that last line is beautiful. And obviously, as a as a practicing Catholic. The one true faith. Uh, obviously, I find a lot of resonances in there. Mm -hmm. The three rivers crashing into heaven. Oof, that's that's yeah. uh, heavy, heavy. Uh, Thanks, guys. Yeah. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Are we going to see this in book form at some point? We're going is... to see it in book form. It's we got a we got some things still going on, but yeah, yeah. it should be it should be out sometime next year. Cool, I'm going to cool. say it right here, right now. When that happens, we will do an ad hoc bookends book club 
for the release around the release. I like that. Again, yeah. this is our book club for Patreon. So yeah. there you go. We will, That's you just have to keep us posted, question. Jason, and we'll have a really good time. We'll read the, uh, the book and then you can come on uh, for, we'll you know, for the Patreon folks. That's, and we'll talk about that's it. So sweet guys. You, yeah. you, you're the best. <laughs> I, I, it's so great to just hang out and talk with you guys about it this. Is. I knew, I knew that we, I knew there was stuff from the episodes that the Milton episode we could use as a conduit to come and explore some of this yeah. stuff. And I thought you guys would really like to hear what's sort of rolling around in, in, in the poetry community right now. But yeah. It's, it's really cool to hear about. And, and Milton was one we did, we covered it. And, you know, sometimes we, we, we cover a subject and at the end of it, I feel like I, I figured, I kind of figured them out, not a hundred percent, but I kind of know Milton, who came to the end of it, I was like, oh, man, I think I just scratched the surface of Milton doing that. Like, I feel like there's way more than I was able to get to. So this is this. Is I, cool yeah, I, I wonder about and this is getting a little more into the politics of the era over the poetry, possibly. But mm-hmm. his choice and you might have touched on this, Brad, but his choice to write about the Bible in this period as a Protestant, mm-hmm. that seems to be a loaded choice. I mean, he's he's sort of saying this is ours we can do with it what we will which of course is not that not that dante didn't do it before him but uh you know but there's there's a certain politics behind this the audacity to to put words into the the mouth of of the devil and and other and angels and of of god Mm. and of god he puts puts words in the mouth of god i mean that's 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 audacious for anybody to do right um yeah, yeah. I mean, th- this is one thing I-, I think it's so interesting. I read his work, and and I guess I'm, maybe I'm curious about Jason, your opinion on this. I, you know, we heard we heard the opening uh, of your of your new your book. I mean, is that a collection or is it just a book? It's 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 it's, it's, it's a little bit of both. It's a, okay. It's a, there there are divisions in it, but it can also be read as one piece. Okay. And did okay. you? Yeah. Do you have you named it? Did you give it a name? Did you say? I I hate the name. <laughs> <laughs> so I am not. I am not. I think we talked about this the last time I was on about how I hate the name. All right. Okay. Is, okay. <laughs> it is tentatively called Confluence, but I want to name it something else. Uh, okay. So, well, All right. Well, we'll see. Know. We'll see what it what happens we'll, with the publisher. Work, the publisher might be like it Confluence. Here. I'm not publishing it if it's not called Confluence. Yeah. That's yeah, a deal I, breaker, Jason. I'm well aware that that's a Cra- <laughs> crashing into heaven's a pretty dope title. Mm, mm, um, mm. um uh, yeah, so so I, you know, one thing I got kind of got thought thinking about and I with Milton and and you know, three of us as writers and and I I don't want to get caught in sort of object level politics, like what's going on today necessarily. But I am interested in the conversation about um, writers and so, so Milton, Milton's politics and his art, sometimes they're, they're basically the same thing. And I'm kind of curious, like, Jason, do you think there's some, <clears throat> is there a responsibility to sort of, have uh, a role in political discourse as a as a poet say do you feel that or no i'm going to say something controversial and say no ah yes <laughs> good thank you <laughs> i feel i i feel the same way i've been i've been seeing things on twitter recently especially because as politics just gets kind of more intense there's always this like you're supposed to say something and my right. take is this like as a writer i feel like I'm just supposed to say what I think I'm supposed to say. Isn't that that's like the the upshot of the like we don't make any money. There's no career. <laughs> so like, can I at least not have to talk about shit I don't want to talk about? But right. <laughs> I, I I view myself as an observer. I am mm. an observer. And sometimes that observation is in engagement with my own life. And yes, that can be whatever way you want to look at that. It can mm. be self-serving, it can be nasal gazing. I understand that. But um, I think I am better as a writer, as an observer than Mm. as. And and this goes this is really interesting because this goes back to sort of the um, 
what was happening to me when I was in New York is that, you know, and a lot of the other poets that were in their late 30s, early 40s. Then I was also at Evergreen, which still had that sort of patina of the 1960s about it, you know, and then I sort of fell out of love with having to be the voice of something. Um, And, you know, so a lot of my work changed drastically, not just from a uh, style standpoint, but from a content standpoint when I moved from New York to St. Louis. And I think that's really important. But no, I don't view myself as a voice of anything other than the observational powers that I have as Jason Gallagher. And to be honest, I think that that should be enough. Mm -hmm. I think that should be enough for a writer to get that audience. You know, I did. So I did what I wanted to do for today as a writer. I read that poem to the two of you and the two of you got something out of it. Yeah, we just certainly right? did. Yeah. That, that to me is like, that's it. I, I did right. for a writer. Yeah. It was only two people. And, you know, through the podcast, there'll be more people that'll, that'll resonate with the work, but being a voice is definitely not. Yeah. And no, I, I like, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a kind of strange narcissism masquerading yes. as a weird collectivism, yes. right? Like, yeah. do you do, who, do you want to be the voice of a generation or like the voice of this political faction of a generation? It all devolves into grift in the end, doesn't yeah. it? It just sort of <laughs> falls apart. Right. The thin <laughs> tissue paper. This is what I and I want to get into too, but um, it, and it's also just the the um the atmosphere of America just renders it all into this commercial slurry. So as well-meaning as you are, it just it's just more content. Well, sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's, yeah. that's the thing. And, yeah. and in some ways, what I'm doing is just more content too. But it's 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 my observational content. It's content that I can walk away from and I can feel some proud, you know, I have pride in mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say about what my life has been like over the last four years. Right. And, you know, whether there's an audience for that or not, I think that that's, I think that that's beside the point, you know, you, Brad, you, you, you said it so eloquently. Um, we're not here to make money. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> yeah. we, we yeah. are because we are, but, right, but it's, right. not, it's not going to happen. No, <laughs> not really. Well, yeah. <laughs> so yeah so you, you know positioning yourself to make sure that you do is kind of foolish in a way yeah. right it's like yeah what do we just you know cater do everything i can to cater to a non-existent sort of yeah right so, right it, this is yeah. this whole this whole we're going to change the world narrative right everybody's going to change the world and it's just I, one wonders when the uh the hippie generation the boomers finally go to their uh reward god love them god bless them uh if that will start to wane because it it really is a kind of strange larp that that generation has impressed on us you know we they came of age in 68 69 then you have the big cocaine come down of the 70s everybody gets the real estate license in the 80s but but that dream and that narrative of sort of the american refounding in the 60s and the 70s and the cultural refounding is is still totally the dominant narrative oh, yeah. on on university campus campuses and at institutions. Yeah. It's not enough to want to get a degree so you can have a, a cozy job and feed your family, or that, or to get to get a degree because you're legitimately passionate about the form of poetry or theater or or the novel. It has to there has to be a telos to it. There has to be a vision, a social vision for it, and it's also. Um, disorienting because you know especially once you once you start to meet people uh and you and you realize of course that nobody knows how to be an adult nobody you know <laughs> right when you actually interact with people what I want you go just everybody's just barely holding it together but we're all sort of supposed to pose as if we have the solution to uh Palestine right, <laughs> or whatever right. else it is you know right like and, and yeah. so can we just be but yeah so for for and for many many people it's a larp and boy 
there is a relief to um to just getting off the carousel and saying and i'm not putting words into your mouth i'll, I'll talk about myself here and just saying no i'm just writing this for my I like I'm working on a one one person show for this actor I love, uh, you know, and it for me, for us, right. for our right. for my little theater community. You know, we just started writing. Ooh, I know people will be excited about this. We do. This isn't about me, but, uh, but we just started writing uh, pages in the Killdozer musical. Did you know, we're working <laughs> right. on a Killdozer musical, Jason. <laughs> yeah, kill, it's I'm called ready. Killdozer, a very unreasonable musical. And so we in any case. Yeah, and of course that'll get political or whatever, but, but am I writing, are we writing that to change the world? No, we're writing it because we think it's going to be fucking hilarious right, and, right. and fun. And right. that's enough in any case. Yeah, mm -hmm. in any case. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Milton. <laughs> yeah, back to no, Milton. But, but yeah. this, does, this does have a connection to Milton. Milton is a very specific type of person, right? And you talked about that at length in the episode, which I thought was great. You know, Milton is a poster. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. you know, of all of the writers that you have done over the time frame of Art of, of Darkness, I don't think there is any other writer who fits our milieu today as much as Milton. <laughs> Isn't that weird? I, I came away with it feeling the same way. Yeah. 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 But yeah. he's like, oh, I'm pissed. I want to get a divorce. Right. Right. <laughs> In my opinion, like my yeah. opinion matters. Yeah. Like. Like in, in in something beyond like it matters to me. Like just the the, the I you know. The, the, yes, I I totally agree. That was what was so fascinating about, it. and it made me think of like, is that because he's like a man of his ahead of his time, or is that because our times are somehow very like the times he lived in? And I'm, I still don't know if I really know the answer to that. I don't either. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. What here's a question I have for you, Jason. Do you have a bit of Milton from anything? Could be from Paradise Lost, but it could be from something else. Do you have a bit of Milton that you really appreciate? That I you maybe will read for us? I do, I do not have a bit yeah. of Milton that I really appreciate because yeah. I find the texts themselves inscrutable. <laughs> okay. I, I find what he's doing immensely edifying. Mm. So it's like, like here, here, here's here's the way that I would put it. Here's the way that I would put it. As someone who has taught sophomore literature before, I have taught Shakespeare. I love teaching Shakespeare. Shakespeare is easier than Milton. Mm. You do, I think right. so too. Oh yeah, agreed. There yeah. are like like when you ask me that question, is there a bit of Milton that I can take out and say this is beautiful language like any part of The Tempest, which is probably my favorite play of all time. The Tempest um, is such a banger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Just, I saw Patrick Stewart do The Tempest at the oh. Royal Shakespeare Company in like 2007. <laughs> Somebody had a heart attack in the, oh no, I think they had a heart attack at Anthony and Cleopatra. They were doing them. I saw him do Anthony and Cleopatra and The Tempest. The Tempest was, was so good. It's such a great play. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it's, it's, you know, that's where there's anything that I'm jealous of. It's The Tempest. Like, I just, mm -hmm. I love The Tempest so much. But like, I could sit here and take portions of that written 75 years before ish 75 years ish before um paradise lost mm -hmm. and like and say this okay this this is something and i can't do that with paradise interesting yeah yeah very interesting yeah well, he, let me he is, no, no, I, ahead, let me let me just let me i'm gonna read the first uh what is it the stanza the first sure. Yeah, why not? Um, and then I, before I do, I want to tease something that we're doing in 2024. I don't know if we've announced this one yet, Brad, but I also think Jason will be an obvious darkroom guest after the fact. So in 2024, season four, Art of Darkness, we're going to yeah. be doing a double banger, double shotgun approach. I am prepping 
this is going to be like there'll be a bit of kayfabe here. It's going to yeah. be fun though. It's going to get real. It's going to get. There's going to be real heat around this. We're, we're trying uh, to. Um, we 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 we're well. We welcome the heat. Yeah. Yeah. We welcome the heat. That's right. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's going to be a double uh, episode where I'm going to prepare Shakespeare the proper way. And we're going to do the Shakespeare episode properly. And then Brad, coincidentally, like we're going to come in hot the same day. Yeah. Brad is going to prepare the Edward DeVere, the Oxfordian perspective <laughs> of right. on Shakespeare. And we're going to do like dueling episodes to try to convince the audience of either the Stratfordian or yeah. the Ox Oxfordian position. <laughs> and I and Jason, you'll have to come. You know what's good? You know what? Are you okay, Jason? Do you have? I, I want to put in just I, okay. as we say this. Yeah. I'm not necessarily. I'm not a Devere person. Like, mm, mm, you know what I mean? Mm. I, I don't even know what the argument is, but we're gonna find out. So, well, yeah. let's see. I mean, are you, yeah. Jason? I think we maybe have talked about this before. Do you have a strong opinion on, uh, you know, Stratford or Oxford? You know, Shakespeare or uh, Devere? No. I do not have a strong okay. Okay. So the so the way this yep the way this is gonna work <laughs> is after these episodes in 2024. Jason is going to come on <laughs> and he's going to determine the winner of, <laughs> of the two episodes. Yes. So you have that to look forward to uh, Art, Art of Darkness season. And then four. from then on, whenever we refer to Shakespeare, whoever has won that, that is what we take as like. Um, you know, when a, when a person is convicted in a trial, you say, well, I don't know for sure, but according to the law, they're guilty. That will be our situation with Shakespeare. Absolutely, Jason. You have to get a gavel. <laughs> I already have the, a gavel. Oh, you already have a perfect. Of course. Of course he has a gavel. I love how this all works out. Yeah. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, can, can I read a bit of? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of, you you go ahead. Well, let me let me yeah. read let me read the first go stanza. Ahead, like oh, I sure, said, because I, I got to follow up with what I what I say. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's anything anything a uh, university taught me? It <laughs> said I got to follow up. Yeah. Um, book one of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose mortal uh, taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat, sing heavenly muse that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning, how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos or if Zion Hill delight thee more, and Siloah's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song, that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Ionian mount, while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. And chiefly thou, O spirit, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure, instruct me. For thou knowest thou, from the first wast present, and with mighty wings outspread dove-like, satst brooding on the vast abyss, and matest it pregnant. What in me is dark illumine, what is low rays and support, that to the height of this great argument I may assert the eternal providence." And justify the ways of God to men. Bang. That's quite an intro. That he's is he's invoking intro. God as the muse, is he not? I mean, yeah. wow, yeah, heavy. Yeah, mm. quite yeah, bang. banger. Let me read a little. Um, this is just a sonnet. Um, this is a sonnet. Uh, what is it? Sonnet fifteen on the late massacre in Piedmont, and for people who are maybe not familiar with what that might be, um, the late massacre in, in um, oh, I had this pulled up. Hold on one second. Um, the late massacre in, in um, Piedmont is this time where the Catholics murdered a bunch of Waldensians uh, in, I think, 1655. Um, and so let me just read yeah, this. But, but, but what did they do? What did they do? What did they do wrong? Oh, they they were minding their own business mm. and not and not part of the church. Oh, <laughs> so mm. anyway, <laughs> darn. Uh, uh, here we go. And I just not this is not I'm not trying to re uh adjudicate something that happened in the 1600s, but this is a heavy poem. It's pretty intense. <clears throat> 
Avenge, O Lord, thy slaughtered saints, whose bones lie scattered on the Alpine mountains cold, even them who kept thy truth so pure of old. When all our fathers worshipped stocks and stones, forget not in thy book record their groans. Who were thy sheep, and in their ancient folds, slain by the bloody Piedmontese that rolled mother with infant down the rocks, their moans, the veils redoubled in the hills, and they to heaven. Their martyred blood and ashes so o'er all the Italian fields where still doth sway the triple tyrant that from these may grow a hundredfold, who having learnt thy way, early may fly the Babylonian woe. So I like that poem. It's got a Mm. a heavy, it's dark, it's bloody, it's violent, it's um it's it's cool, it's interesting. Um, well, it's, 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 it's kind of a drag. We've movie. had like a four to five hundred year civil war in Europe over the religion of uh, of Jesus Christ, of Christianity. It, it, one really wonders uh, how, what the present would look like if we had all really just figured it out yeah, instead well, of fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, sort of yeah. horrible, horrible it that is. it happened. It is. Out. Yeah. Um. So, you know, there was one thing we were going to kind of talk about. Um, but maybe we, you know, we might not quite have time. Jason, you, you referred to this, um, you mentioned the Stanley fish bit that I sent you and, and Stanley fish, and maybe we can just talk about it briefly. Um, so Stanley fish was a, a scholar. He's still around actually, but, um, um, he's an old, an old man. I think he was born in the thirties. Um, he wrote a book called surprised by sin in 1967, the reader in paradise lost is the subtitle. Um, and, and the reason I kind of picked this is I, I got very interested in the um, there's a lot of talk people whenever you hear Paradise Lost sort of mentioned, what people will say is kind of something along the lines of like, yeah, that's the one where like the devil is the good guy or that's the one where like the devil is really persuasive. Um, something along those lines. He's so charismatic that you can't kind of deny him. And um, Stanley Fish is a guy who. Um, He's one of the like major progenitors of uh, what's called reader response theory. And for people who aren't familiar with this, it, in literary criticism, you know, in, academically, there are all kinds of different schools of thought. I mean, there's the sort of the formalists who would be aghast at what we do at Art, on Art of Darkness because we dare mention the biographies of these people. Um, and, and there's all sorts of, you know, there's Mar- Marxist critique. There's there's pick a pick a word and you could you could form a school of uh, criticism on this. Reader response was an effort to um, think of a book as. I'm probably I'm probably giving it somewhat short shrift. Think of a book as a reader's experience. What is the experience that is what is the affective experience of the reader? Um, And so Stanley Fish's take, I thought, was really quite interesting about what Milton was doing, what he's maybe his possibly what his intentions were, but at least what he seems to be doing with the character of the devil. And so people who've read Paradise Lost if you can discern what's going on, and as Jason said, it's very difficult, and I can attest to this. It is reading Paradise Lost, excuse me, was the most difficult reading experience of my life. And I've not shied away from difficult books. You know what I mean? Like I I'm I'm willing to pick up, you know, a thousand pages of whatever. Um and you know, I think Stanley Fish's argument is something like he's trying to make you the reader. Um, Well, he says it right here. Um, Hold on. Uh, Quote, I would like to suggest something about Paradise Lost that is not new except for the literal literalness with which the point will be made. The poem's center of reference is its reader who is also its subject. So Stanley Fish says the subject of Paradise Lost is you, literally the person I'm referring to, you. Um, two, Milton's purpose is to educate the reader to an awareness of his position and responsibilities as a fallen man or woman and to sense to a sense of the distance which separates him from the innocence once his. Uh, three, Milton's method is to recreate in the mind of the reader the drama of the fall to make him fall again exactly as Adam did and with Adam's troubled clarity. That is to say, not deceived. And so. When you take this notion and you start reading Satan's arguments, um, because partially Stanley Fish is writing in response to a gentleman named, um, what is his name? A.J.A. Waldock, 
who is basically AJA Waldock has said that one of the faults in Paradise Lost is that every time Satan makes a good argument, Milton comes along and tells you it's not a good argument, which does sort of happen. Um, I just thought that this was really interesting that what Milton is really trying to do, he's not trying to make an intellectual argument. And to I think in and and I think to frame it as an intellectual argument about which Satan is either right or wrong um, is not understanding how deep and rich this thing is and that there is this sense in which Milton is trying to recreate the fall in the reading fall for what Satan says and then you're going to realize your tragic mistake so anyway I just kind of want to point that out I don't know if you have anything to say about that Jason you don't feel obligated to (laughs) no I just I just thought the argument was really was really interesting. I I was interested in um, he makes fish talks about how Milton will undercut the Satan speeches and give these vainglorious sort of very persuasive rhetorical flourishes. And then Milton will enter in as the poetic voice and say, but which, which is really fascinating. I, the argument still is very present in literary communities today about the devil being the protagonist of this text. Mm-hmm. Um, and people get heated about it still. Mm-hmm. I, I was in a classroom not that long ago where people were sort of going at it about the devil's uh, position in Paradise Lost. So, well, if he uh, is, let I me. Mean- well, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, Jason, and let me ask: Do these people in this particular, and uh, if if you can't say because you don't know or it's too private, uh, do these people believe in the devil? That, See, this yeah. is the question. This is the question that is interesting in relationship to one of the things that Fish is talking about: is how is this text read? in a pretty a religious world um because milton is doing things that are predicated on the fact that you believe in the fall and if you're predisposed to not believe in the fall then the effectiveness of the text as a narrative mm-hmm. right is no, go ahead, Kevin. I think. Well, and I wonder. I wonder if it's it's ever convinced anybody, right? <laughs> right? Because I mean, you, we're all here to change the world, right? Yeah, well, uh, if, if you don't have any belief in this, or you don't at least like sort of put stock in any of these as potential religious standpoints, then it does kind of become like an intellectual exercise of like, well, is the devil making a good point, right? Which. It in in I, I think what Stanley uh, Fish is arguing exactly what the devil argues, wants you to do, <laughs> right? It, what what and, and there's another part part here too. Let me let me see if I can find it. I know we're kind of running out of time here. Um, yeah, let's wind this episode, down and then come back for the after dark. Let me yeah, see if I can. Times. Let me mm-hmm. see if I can find this part. Um, uh, um, Milton allows that rhetoric and to some degree poetry can have an evil quality. And what can be evil about it is that rhetoric can be so effective that it can convince you to do wrong or to go to turn away from God. Right. Um, And and part of what I think Paradise Lost is, uh, according to Stanley Fish, is Milton is trying to sort of show you that it can do that and then try and help you recover from that in a sense. Right. It's like, don't worry, you will be fooled. Rhetoric will fool you. In fact, it fooled your first parents, Adam and Eve. Yeah. And and so you need to have this is in part our defense against this is to 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 not to pretend it can't fool you, but to sort of almost as a almost as an exercise to be fooled by it and then carried through the drama onto the other side in which you sort of turn back to God. 
Fish goes on and makes the argument that simile and metaphor were viewed negatively in the establishment of rhetoric. Right. That was that, you know, for lack of a better term, it's more of that silver tongued way of speaking. And that's deceptive. It's deceptive. Yeah. Yeah. That goes into why Satan uses so much figurative language throughout Paradise Lost. Because, in fact, he is using rhetoric in order to. Right. Because the rhetoric or poetic effectiveness of a metaphor has nothing to do with its truth or or its alignment with God, say. Right. It doesn't have an it's something else. It's an aesthetic impact that it makes. So, yeah. Very interesting. Well, maybe we'll, we'll talk a little like bit more about this. I feel like we've Go ahead. milked the core or the main episode <laughs> of the dark room quite enough. The same Gross. way that what did he, uh, Milton, uh, say? Come in. Yeah, he would milked. wake up and say, "I need to be milked." No, yes, absolutely incredible. Yeah. What a what a turn of phrase. That's a metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the great Jason Gallagher. We're, we're going to come back for the after dark. Every episode we do for Patreon, we do a bonus 20, 30 minutes. We're going to talk about some more stuff. Patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Thank you to everybody who supports the pod in a material way. You can find us at art of We have the blood meridian book club meeting coming up on December 3rd with the great Aaron Gwynn. He's going to be joining us. So if you're in, uh, you know, on Patreon, be reading the book. If you're listening to this much later, don't worry. If you sign up for Patreon, the book club meeting will be recorded. There's going to be a lot of good stuff that happens there. We have a lot of fun. What are we going to talk about on the After Dark? Brad, remind me. We're going to talk about the William Blake. One of his prophetic books was Milton, two poems. So we're going to talk about what that was, what Milton meant to him. What did he think Milton was? How did Milton fit into the William Blake uh, extended universe? We're going to we're going to try to see if we we can get to the bottom of that a little bit. Jason will be there on the uh, after after dark. Jason, I know everybody's waiting uh, for your book now. Hotly anticipated book of poems uh, in 2024, and we really look forward to that. We'll have you on the book club when that comes out, and then of course you will be the judge, the final adjudicator of the <laughs> Shakespeare Oxford Oxfordian Stratfordian question that. in 2024. So thank you for coming on, Jason. Yeah, that'll be fun. It's going to be good. All right, we'll be back. <laughs>